I'm Tom, and I used to be sleepy, totally useless in the morning. I'd snooze my water glass and try to drink my alarm clock, or confuse my toothpaste with fungus cream. Cringe. But no longer, thanks to my Nectar mattress with its premium memory foam and Nectar cool technology. Every mattress includes a one-year trial, forever warranty, and free shipping. With $200 off, prices start at only $399 and come with $499 of premium accessories. So rest easy and visit Nectarsleep.com. What's that? Uh, taxi driver? Ah, yeah, cool. And, uh, shower head, big knife. Is that Psycho? Okay. Dancing lady. Are those wolves? Dances with wolves? They kind of look more like foxes. Or a hedgehog. Okay, what's this? Uh, a radio, another wolf slash fox, and lots of people. Radio fox group? Radio wolf bunch? Radio wolf gang? Radio wolf gang emoji title, I love it! Smiley love heart eyes, winky kiss. Hello, this is Radio Yeah, we're back on air. The goes down, but we don't care, we're mobile now, we're everywhere. Yeah, Radio You know, it was it was really strange, but I actually became ill after I finished the painting. I was I was a week in bed with a fever, and I, I just you know had had a massive flu right after I finished that painting. And maybe it was all psychological. Maybe it was just the stress got me sick. You know. I met Jose Parla when he came to London for a show in 2009 and he was the first person I'd met who'd actually lived the 80s hip-hop culture that we'd only read about in magazines or watched on videos when we were kids. He's wonderfully talented, he's kind, he's generous, he's dedicated, and in spite of all his success, he remains incredibly humble. I invited him onto Beginning and Middle, not only because he's led a remarkable life that's taken him all over the world, but because his story is also a great example of what can be achieved if you put your back into it. His parents met in Cuba in 1965, approximately six years after the revolution. The story, as I've heard it, is uh, they met in Havana and uh, they met on a bus. They were on the same bus route every day on their way to school. And what kind of people were they? My father was a film student. He loved film and acting. He was a creative person. I would say, you know, he had that vibe of almost like a beatnik poet, you know. My mother could draw really well, and she had interest in uh, studying architecture. Dr. Castro, it is reported that you feel that your role in the revolution is about over. But, um, you know, the revolution changed a lot of people's dreams because it became more about survival than about following those kind of, like, positions. I think that once people got into their head that the revolution wasn't working for them, their goal was to leave Cuba and join this exodus to go to the United States. Because sincerely, I don't ambition power, money, nothing, only to serve my country. Good. 
my parents left Cuba to Miami, Florida. And my brother and I were born in Miami, Florida. And after being one years old, I moved to Puerto Rico with my family. So, uh, and then I spent the next 10 years in Puerto Rico as a, as a child. What was Puerto Rico like? Beautiful, really, really beautiful. From my memory, it was um, a very innocent childhood. I grew up in a neighborhood called Guaynabo, which uh, was a suburb of San Juan, Puerto Rico, the capital. You know, I went to Catholic school. We had mango trees in the backyard, cherry trees, lemon. We had a huge backyard full of fruits. So it was like this kind of beautiful upbringing, uh, running around in the streets with kids, playing um, baseball. And, and, and uh, I remember also, you know, having very good, you know, uh, values. You know, it, it was not like this kind of hustle and bustle of like the American city of Miami that I then moved to. You know, it was it, it was a quiet place, Puerto Rico. We, as a family, moved to Miami, and um, what was going on was uh, a culture shock. You know, because I was learning English at that time. Through that first year, what was happening around me was the birth of hip hop culture. So I organically joined in with that. It was fun. It was like the mood. It was what was going on in the city. I heard hip hop in Puerto Rico, but I didn't know it was a thing called hip hop. You know what I mean? And then in Miami, you, you sort of like became part of it. And um, that included, you know, the visual art of painting on walls. That included seeing MCs, you know, uh, in, in the schoolyard with their boombox, you know, and a microphone attached to it. When I got to Miami, one of the first records that uh, was given to me as a gift was Planet Patrol, Play at Your Own Risk by my sister. And it was one of the biggest b-boy songs at the time in the hip-hop scene for breakdancing, and it just took over.
you're around 11 years old, you, you've been in Miami a year or so, and you come home and you tell your mum, mum, I'm going to be a painter just like Picasso. Cross the street to what was at that time uh, a school that was in my neighborhood, which was a vocational school. They, they taught art classes and they taught um, drafting and architectural and graphic design classes. And um, I remember peeking through the window of that school as a little kid and just seeing what other people were doing and thinking, wow, I really want to learn to make great work like those guys. Picasso, the name challenges and fascinates all who care for the art of painting, the art of inventing forms. I had seen a Picasso book at that school. So, uh, you know, just flipping through the pages, it got in my mind that, like, I could do art like Picasso. His art invents and reinvents the most diverse style. When I came home, I said that to my mom, and she, she thought it was cool, and she was very supportive of it. So she says, yeah, great, you can do it. And she could draw really well, so from time to time, she'd look at my drawings and pick up the pencil and show me a little technique and tell me how to do it better. And so she kind of, you know, was, you know, around to see that early development. Train, Does face, your mother though. wonder why you come home with that all over your face? No, <laughs> she knows I write the graffiti. I told her, I say, I'm going up on the train, so I'm going to go write some graffiti. Yeah, she says, if cops uh, call, I'm going to come running to me. I was part of a little group you know, in the neighborhood of friends that we were always sketching and drawing and showing each other styles and techniques. And when we were looking at a lot of pictures of what was going on in New York, instead of trading baseball cards, we were trading photographs of walls in New York. And so we were practicing and learning our own styles and creating our own styles. I see you did the case with the seats this time. You yeah, know who I am, though, anyway. You know the king of what? King of style. And, and so how long was it between that kind of realization you wanted to be an artist that you started writing actually on walls and, and trains and stuff? Uh, I started doing it at, that, at the age of 10. And, but, you know, my mom didn't know about it. We were just sneaking around the house and going in the neighborhood, writing on boxes and sneaking off, finding walls around the city, rooftops and things like that. But it was, you know, like neighborhood stuff. But in those next two years, three years, by the age of 13, we had already started to spread through other neighborhoods and to downtown Miami and all around the place. Yo, man, wait up. I just want to talk to you, man. I want to talk to you about the union. What about the union? I don't want to talk about these guys. These guys are making a lot of money, man. I think you should be down with this. We're now in the middle of the 80s and hip-hop culture is really kind of taking hold. Breakdance culture, you're breakdancing yourself, you're doing graffiti, there's hip-hop music everywhere. At any point, do you step back and kind of take stock and, and just think, well, we're in the middle of quite a scene here. Arguably, you know, certainly of our generation, the most important kind of cultural scene that there's been in our lifetime. Yeah, we were well aware that it was happening. And, you know, uh, we saw a future. I'm going to interview them tomorrow. You know, I, I remember already having heard, you know, by 1985, that a lot of the original writers from New York that were painting trains and painting on walls, that they had already exhibited. They're doing graffiti on canvas. So now they're making graffiti on canvas. In galleries in Rome and in London and um, in Holland, you know, and as far as Japan. So knowing that sort of laid the path to think and, and, and imagine yourself that in a few years of hard work that you had a, a, a place to go, a, a, a goal.
we've talked sometimes, you know, we kind of compared stories about when we were growing up and, and like we were taking all our cultural references from America at this point and you were actually there living it. And so I've often asked you about like, you know, what kind of student you were and what your school at life was. And you were just like, dude, we were out on the beach having a nice time. At first, you know, like like any student, I want to do my best and, and everything like that. But it was a, it was a difficult time in Miami for less than the affluent neighborhoods. So, you know, the education wasn't so great. Schools had a lot of problems because there was a lot of violence because of drugs. It was a dangerous place to grow up. And what I meant by being at the beach was that we used to skip school because personally I found that school was boring. I was interested in art and I knew it. And um, I was really interested in history class. So if you look at my grades, I, I would get straight A's in history and in art. And then all the other classes, I basically had a zero because I just wouldn't show up. <laughs> and we'd go to the beach because there was abandoned buildings and walls that you can paint. And then you could go for a swim and then you can fish. So there was like a really interesting self-lesson in life. That was our school and we took it very seriously. I mean, I always say we because I was always in a group of artists. It, it was amazing. It was a group of people who had a goal to make better art on a daily basis. You know, it had to be better than yesterday's drawing. It had to be better and better and better and better. So that was our school. And in 1987, you, um, you go to a Tough Crew concert. It was a skating ring that we used to go see concerts and uh, it was a roller skating ring. You know, and in the center, all the breakdancers would gather and there would be battles and we would dance and everything like that. So it was a great night. There was a lot of gangs from all the neighborhoods of Miami, from different neighborhoods. And they, they didn't like each other for various reasons. And they would start fights. Sometimes somebody would have a gun. Things would get a little bit out of control and people were running out of the venue. The thing spread out into the parking lot. We got in the car and we started to drive away when someone broke our car windows. And when we got out of the car, I got hit by a stray bullet in the foot. That is what led me to spend more time with the visual art than the dancing and the goofing around as a kid. I was drawing constantly all the time and a lot of my friends would come and visit me and like my mother's kitchen became kind of like the meeting point for everybody to come and draw. And my mom would cook for everybody and she was very friendly and you know lovely and invite all the kids. She's smart too because she was keeping us out of the streets. And so we were drawing for hours until it was time to go home, you know? So at what point did you and your crew start going up to New York regularly? I went on a trip to New York in 1986, and uh, this was before I had had that trouble with, you know, the injury in my foot being shot. After I healed, I took a second trip with a group of friends, and we went up there to check out the concerts and look at the trains and take pictures. And it wasn't just about the streets for me. I wanted to go to the museums. I wanted to engage uh, with the the sort of 
do-it-yourself galleries that were happening, you know, at that time in New York, because we didn't have that in Miami. How were you guys received when Miami guys went up to, to New York? For New Yorkers, if you had style, if you were good, age didn't matter, your background didn't matter, but we came already with style. So by the time we came to New York, we had this kind of very distinct, very Miami style. Some people didn't like us because they were like, get out of here, you're from Miami. While some people were like, hey, that's kind of cool. These guys are from Miami and they're good. You know, let them stick around. And then we, we became affiliated with some of the best crews in New York. You know, we gained acceptance. It was a tough town to break into. Right, and, and you were, you were breakdancing quite a lot at this point. I, I was for years to come. You've battled crazy legs. Yeah, in a friendly way. In a way. friendly battle. Yeah, yeah, in a friendly way. And, I've, and we've also battled other people together in a friendly way or sometimes by surprise and things like that, yeah. When you say break, what you're talking about is the break of the record, not the person or the dance. The break is the description of the, or the section of a record, but exactly. We call break boy, b-boy. You break on the break. We're going to play another track now, which is Aretha Franklin, Rocksteady. Tell us about that track. Well, I mean, just a classic uh, breakdancing tune as well, but it's also the name of the Rocksteady crew, which, you know, we all looked up to in terms of breakdancing, you know, Crazy Legs and Ken Swift, Jojo, uh, Doze, all these amazing dancers were coming out of that crew, and this song was really representative of what styles you can do. Rocksteady, baby, that's what I feel now. In 1988, when Jose was in 10th grade and only 15 years old, his art teacher secretly entered his work into an art competition in New York for 12th graders called the Scholastic Art Awards. 
He won the competition and went to enter his work in the Nationals, which he also won. From all of this, he was able to get a scholarship to go to college and despite some initial resistance from his high school, Jose took up a place at Savannah College of Art and Design. The first thing you notice is that you're meeting all these amazing, interesting young artists from all around the globe. It was an international school. I remember meeting kids from Zanzibar, Tokyo, London, and here I was as Miami Cuban kid. It, it, was, it was a major experience in terms of the idea of becoming an artist, and it's not only about the art that I grew up with. It was a great experience because it not only opened me up as a human being by having these new references, new teachings, and people all around me. Technically, I was learning great amount of techniques that weren't available to me before. A really integral part of your development as an yeah. artist then. At the same time, I was really interested in continuing with the roots because I had a bone to pick with the system. I didn't want to drop this beautiful hip-hop culture and painting that had saved my life. At that point specifically, a lot of the teachers thought that what I was doing and bringing into my formal studies was not art. And, and so my way to go around that was, all right, convince the teachers you can do all of your formal studies, you know, like still life drawing, figure drawing. And I did all those things and I, I did really well with that. When I got into the more experimental classes at school, I would choose to do my subject matter always having to do with where I was coming from, you know, the hip hop culture. And so then it was a challenge for them because now they were still trying to put me in the trash. They were saying no. You know, there was one specific moment that really I, I always have uh, as, as, a, as a changing point at school, which was in a, in a painting critique, the, uh, the professor said to me, you know, this belongs in the trash. And so I got upset and I stormed out of the class and um, I thought, well, I'll go to the library. I went to the school library, which totally by chance had a black and white photography show of a very important artist known as Robert Rauschenberg. Robert Rauschenberg was a very important figure in the New York art scene in the 50s and 60s and so on, and you know, even now. But I also like seeing people using materials that, that one's not accustomed to seeing in art. He was literally an artist who would turn trash into sculptures. Because uh, I think that has a particular value. I had just been told that my work was trash. I thought, wait, how come my teacher didn't even tell me about Robert Rauschenberg? Yet the school's hanging him on the school walls as an exhibition. So that led me to, you know, become very interested. I got all these books and I went back to, to the teacher. I went to his office and I put the books on his desk. And I said, how come you didn't tell me about these artists? And so... I gained his respect and then the dialogue became open and so then I was able to do whatever I wanted and experiment because now he knew that I knew something. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. That kind of changed my life at that moment uh, because I saw that something that I was interested in 
predated my 80s bit of knowledge that came from like, you know, a vernacular underground culture. You know, that, that gave me a lot of uh, inspiration. In 1992, during his third year at Savannah, Hurricane Andrew hit Miami really badly and Jose quit college and came back to the city to help his family out. He enrolled at a school called the New World School of the Arts and he got his own studio on Miami Beach. But this is 25 years ago and the art scene in Miami is nothing like what it is now. The, the art world and the art scene at that time was limited and I was part of a, um, a center in Miami Beach called the South Florida Art Center, which at that time had um, great local artists that I looked up to and uh, there was a scene. And, and so I'm assuming at this point it must be quite a struggle to make a living as an artist. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't selling anything. And, you know, I had a little art studio. I hadn't ever had an exhibition. I was making money painting people's houses, like literally just painting. You know, I had a bicycle rigged up to have a basket so I can put the gallons of paint and my roller and brushes. And that was my job. It was one of my odd jobs that I'd go around and paint apartments, you know. And I just got by. The thing, too, that was really cool was that Miami had a major connection to all of the underground New York dance clubs. So you would have all the classic New York dance clubs come and do, you know, like before the word pop-up, they would do their Miami pop-up. And all these like great New York clubs that everybody knew about, they would come to Miami. But you know what they were doing? Importing great music, the best DJs. All these people would come and dance. All these New Yorkers, boom, they would come to uh, Miami and hang out. And, and you know what? Tons of artists would come. So Miami had its local scene, but it had these little injections of like New York vibes and scenes coming into it. That was the birth of what later became known as the Winter Music Conference. Uno, dos, tres, We're now moving out of hip hop with this is they're bringing a dance sound down there. Yeah, I mean, incredible sound was coming from New York with uh, underground house music coming into the scene. And, you know, Miami had already had its own disco style and, and hip hop was always part of it. And the clubs were playing both hip hop and house music. But there was a period where even myself, I was just a big house head. I loved it. I was really into dancing and I learned all these new styles. And so we're going to play now, we're going to play uh, Underground Solution, Love Dancing, yeah? That's right.
there's a kind of burgeoning scene going on in Miami, but at this point you get an offer to go and work in Atlanta, working as a painter. You know, previous to that, I should say that I had already achieved doing that first exhibition in Miami at the South Florida Arts Center, and I had had some sales. So it gave me that, like, aspiration that I could make it. Then, you know, I was living in, in Atlanta, Georgia, right after that. So I was working there as a painter, doing backdrops for uh, music videos, or I was even doing flyers. I, I did the flyers for The Roots, De La Soul. I was working with Arrested Development and different music promoters to do flyers for concerts. And um, then I got the opportunity to uh, show and do a, a group show in Atlanta, which I invited friends from New York and Miami to, to do our, uh, our exhibition at a place called Modern Primitive. Um, that night of the exhibit, which to us was a success, was the night that my father passed away. So it was a shock to find that out because we partied all night, we celebrated all night, and we went to a cool Keith concert, you know, and it was just like, you know, one of the heights and then sudden low to find out that my father had passed away. I decided that that was, you know, the moment that I needed to make a big change in my life. And it's when I packed up all my things and I drove my car with a little U-Haul full of all my stuff and I moved to the Bronx in New York. I, I found a small apartment and then separately I found a small studio. And that was my beginning uh, in New York. Now I've been there almost 20 years. We got these images of the Bronx and so, you know, 20 years ago, what was that like? What was, what was that like as a, as a place? The Bronx is a huge place. It's it's not a small neighborhood. It's it's a borough. It's huge, you know. The part of the Bronx that I lived in was predominantly from what I recall a mixture of Jamaican families, Jewish families, and Irish families. Always with Spanish people and, and, and African Americans in the mix. I would walk home from the train every single day and hear reggae coming out of windows, reggae coming out of the bar, reggae dance hall. It was like this kind of vibe, which was, you know, quite Caribbean. It was nice. That being said, it's the Bronx and it's New York. And you, you know, you would have to watch your back because it was dark sometimes. And, you know, you just kind of had to like, make sure you get home. I lived there because that's what I could afford at the time. And I have friends in the Bronx and I would paint in the Bronx and I was always painting somewhere. You know, I was hardly home. It's around this time that Jose started traveling more and more. He was getting to know cities like London and Tokyo, and naturally this exposure to new countries and cultures started to influence his work. Well, you know, I was absorbing everything, and, and to me, art has always been, you know, the expression of life. I was taking posters right off the wall in London and putting them in a bag and taking them back to New York and use those colors and those pictures in my paintings. And so it was absorbing those cities and telling those stories. And that started to change my work a lot. A couple of years later, we come up to 2001 and, you know, September 11. At this point, you're living in Brooklyn. You're literally, you're, you're right across the water from it. How did that affect you? How did that affect the city? I mean, you can only imagine like the, the major uh, depression and, and, and surprise that um, Americans felt, but New Yorkers felt first. I remember, of course, like everybody was super early in the morning. There was so much noise waking up, like what's all these sirens everywhere? It's nonstop. <laughs> Till this day, the loudest of the loudest city day I've ever experienced and you know go to Fort Green Park which is you know in the neighborhood 
which um, we all knew, from that hilltop, you could directly see the World Trade Center. And so we went there because everyone said a plane had crashed to the World Trade Center, so we went there. As soon as we got to the top of that hill, we saw the second plane hit. And that's when everything was there. We couldn't believe it. It was so surreal. How could it be possible a second plane? Right away, we, we were convinced. There are people talking in the, in, in the park. That's terrorism. You know, everybody, you know, there's no way a second plane would hit. Then, you know, somebody had a radio, and minutes later, Pentagon got hit. There was paranoia. We thought it was like an invasion. They're attacking Washington, D.C. now, and everybody's freaking out. They closed all the bridges. I live across the street from the Brooklyn Hospital at that time. So, you know, they were just bringing tons and tons of people. It was pandemonium. For months on end, the fire wouldn't stop burning. You couldn't, they, the smoke just kept on going and building up and you would see these massive plumes of smoke, you know, sort of uh, in an arch that looked like it was going up and up into the atmosphere. This incredible arch that went on and on and on and the city smelled like fire. And for the first two weeks, the bridges were closed. You couldn't leave Brooklyn. And we're on an island. You know, you have no place to go. So, you know, you, you found things to do. People were drinking a lot. There was a lot of depression. It was a strange time. It was a very surreal time. I wanted to paint about it. I mean, it was definitely a, a cathartic experience for me. I, I made a painting that I later titled Gemini. It was a painting about that plume of smoke. And, you know, I, I worked on it for months and months and months and months, not knowing where this painting was going to go, what was going to happen with it. It was just my way of, you know, getting my system to, uh, you know, understand what had happened. And, you know, it was, it was really strange, but I actually became ill after I finished the painting. I was, I was a week in bed with a fever, and I, I just you know, had, had a massive flu right after I finished that painting. And maybe it was all psychological, maybe it was just the stress got me sick, uh, you know. Let's talk about your first solo show, which was Personal Alphabet, and you did it in Tokyo. How does that feel as, a, as an artist, finally? You know, you've been working hard for, you know, 10, 15 years or, you know, 20, 20 years at this point, and you're finally getting your own show. Well, it was incredible because I had gone to Tokyo twice before that, and it was on that second trip, I met a gallerist that was doing a, a project down in uh, Harajuku, in Omotesando area of Tokyo, who uh, offered me uh, the space to do a solo show. And, um, you know, I thought, wow, you know, like, so uh, I went back to New York and started preparing all the work. I worked for about a year, brought all the work to Japan, had a fantastic solo show. And by that time I had developed like these relationships in Tokyo, so it felt special to be able to share with my new friends and community there. And funny enough, that really reverberated back to a lot of places. People in New York gave me more respect somehow, like, wow, you just did a show in Tokyo. And then I got an invitation to, you know, do a show here, do a show there. And it just kind of spiraled from there. 
So at this point, Jose was gaining lots of recognition in New York for his work, and he was invited to be part of a show called Boomerang by Agnes B, with graffiti artist Lee Quinones and painter Rostar, which dealt with what New York City had been feeling during the period following 9-11. This led to a show in Paris called The New New York, and that gave him great exposure internationally. And on his return from Paris, Manon Sloan got him his first big museum show. So Manon Sloan, uh, who is a dear friend of mine now, had uh, discovered my work through a friend because she was looking to pair up a young artist with the then uh, 86-year-old artist Mimo Rotella, who was one of the members of the Nouveau Realist movement in Europe. Uh, and uh, for me, it was a huge honor. It was at the Chelsea Art Museum, and it was like my first big New York show since the show with Boomerang. But it was different because it was at an institution, so it was a museum show. Which was, which was massive, and Mimo Rotella, which was historical. What's the difference for an artist to be showing in a museum as opposed to showing in a, a big gallery? Well, you know, when, when you're working with a gallery, there's a commercial aspect to it. The museum structure is different because it's not a place where artworks are for sale. It's a place where artwork is invited to show and to also be conserved for future generations to see. So it's, a, it's an honor to be in a museum show. 2005, you do Philly, you do LA, you do Sydney, and then in 2006, you've got your homecoming and you do a, a show called Cityscapes in Miami. The Miami exhibition was put together by a group of friends in Miami that later on would become known as the Oh Wow Gallery. In a sense, you know, here was my homecoming. It was a homecoming because here I was this Miami kid who had flexed up to New York years before. And in 2006, already things had changed, you know, between 2000 and 2006, those six years, so many things had changed. You know, the internet was fast speed now. A lot more people were known and there was this international kind of community. Art Basel had changed the city of Miami. And so it was a pivotal show. What did all the family make of it? They loved it. I, I loved having my family as part of the show and coming to visit. And, you know, we incorporated tremendous Cuban musicians. Uh, it was it was really fun. Over the next two years, Jose would show at numerous galleries in Europe and Asia. And in 2010, he was commissioned to paint his first large-scale mural in Toronto. The following year, he was invited to paint another huge mural in the entrance of one of New York's most respected cultural centres, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And then, just when he thought things couldn't get any better, Jay-Z asked him to paint a 75-foot mural in the new Barclays Centre Stadium, the home of the Brooklyn Nets. Um, you know, this is, this is an incredible opportunity because it's architecturally beautiful, this building, and so we're seeing it in progress. You know, it's this feeling where it's like, you know, I had spent all these years traveling all over the world to do shows, but this was truly like that moment where it's like, here I am in my home, in my neighborhood, and I'm not only being accepted, I'm being invited, I'm part of this new growth. And so it was like just a massive honor to be a part of that. In 2013, he does two big solo shows in London and in Tokyo. But then in 2014, he gets invited to do a massively significant mural in his adopted home city. While I was in London, I was in talks to a project in New York for doing a mural at the entrance of the One World Trade Center building, 
where the original, uh, um, you know, twin towers of the World Trade Center once stood. So I hadn't gotten um, the commission yet. There were several artists that they were thinking about doing this particular space and this entrance. Um, but in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of like really full circle. I had done reactionary, you know, artwork of the September 11th attacks. And here I am being invited to do something that will bring a new light and a new energy to the World Trade Center. And I actually got the phone call when I got back to New York from London that I was um, accepted to do the project. So I spent a year painting this massive um, mural that is more than 40 meters long and four meters tall. To date, the biggest mural that I've, that I've worked on, that I've done. Now, obviously the art world's completely subjective, but if you are giving advice to a young artist, what do you tell them exactly? The first advice I always tell young artists is make sure that your artwork is really, really good. To do that, you have to work extremely hard. You know, when your friends are going out to party, when your friends are going out to dinner, you have to be in the studio. You have to put in tremendous amount of hours in the studio to make your work really good. And the second thing that I think is also very valuable is have a very nice attitude in life. Have the kind of attitude that projects you into a good future. Think about the things you want, verbalize them, put them in the universe, and put that good energy in your path, yourself. Because often, you know, artists put it in their mind already that it's a difficult thing. And you know what? It can be, but it can also be something that is based on hard work, originality, and a good attitude. Surround yourself with good people, good friends, and surround yourself with people who are like-minded, that are, that are also artists, and learn from each other. So uh, we've talked about your beginning and part of your middle, uh, but I'm wondering where do you go from here? What's the next stage for Jose Parla? Well, just recently, Damiani published a book uh, called In Medias Res, which uh, just came out. And this book trails my life and my work from, you know, the age of 10 until now. It starts off with photographs um, from my very early humble beginnings all the way to featuring the work at the World Trade Center. Um, that encapsulation and having come out with that book, I feel that now I've got this new beginning, which the best part about it is that I don't know where it's all going. You know, like for the last 10 years, I've known, like, I want to do this. I've got that. You know, I'm continuing off of this idea. Right now, it's so fresh and, and, and new that I feel a bit like I'm starting again. So I've got this very humbling feeling, and it feels good. Uh, Jose Parler, that was your beginning and middle. Thank you very much for coming on, bro. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate it. We're going to finish with William on your ball. Better change your mind. Yes. What's interesting about this track is that it's a political track. And it mentions Cuba within the context and list of colonial powers like the United States, England, China, Russia, and Cuba. It's crazy. America, do you ever think this world is yours? Eh? And you, Russia, hey, do you ever think this world is yours? Yeah.
very change your mind Because there's no other one Except God who wants you show featured Jose Parla and me, George Lamb. The assistant editor and sound designer was Natalia Rodriguez. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino and it was produced, edited and sound designed by Ivor Mann. To hear more shows from Radio Wolfgang, download the app via the App Store or Google Play.